He said, go and be my witnesses. He sent his disciples out in pairs and sent them out to share the good news and gave them instruction about what to do. The Christian life is nothing if not put into practice. Practice is critical. In fact, as we think about where we've been in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've looked at it for several weeks. We're coming toward the end. We're coming toward the conclusion. And Paul is, uh, is wrapping his words up in this first letter. And as he does, he's going to paint a picture uh, of the church functioning as it should, a happy, healthy, vibrant church a church with the right DNA, a church that is doing the right things, a church that is focused in the right place. And it's a church with a bright future. In fact, he loved this church. We've said this over and over again. He spent just a short time with them, but he had great hope that they would continue walking and growing in the Lord. He had labored with them for three Sabbaths, and he established with them uh, thoughts of the resurrection because here as he writes back, he said, I've already told you some of these things. Last week as we looked at the resurrection and the day of the Lord, we, we see that Paul in his short time with him had instructed them with some deep things. It's a picture of the church at its best. And in fact, I went back through my notes and, and in moving through this book, I'm kind of circling back because almost seven years ago I had the opportunity to preach here and I preached a message entitled, The Church at Her Best. And when I preached that, it was from a, a segment of this text in 1 Thessalonians and it it excited me then because this church was on the brink of moving toward becoming an autonomous body as Hardy Street Baptist Church. And my challenge and my motivation to you then and today for us is let's continue to look forward with steadfast hope because the best is yet to come. What God has in store for the church, not just Hardy Street Baptist Church, but His church, the best is always yet to come because we're moving toward Jesus Christ. I'll remind you of a story I've told, I think, once before from this pulpit about someone looking forward with great anticipation. There was a man who moved himself into a nursing facility, and in that nursing home, everywhere that he went, there was a lady that was watching him. I mean, he would go to the cafeteria, and there she was, staring at him. He would go down the hallway toward his room, and she was stalking him there. She would look at him. Everywhere he went, he went out on the backyard, in the courtyard, in the patio area, and this woman would show up and stare at him. He, he was a bit unnerved by it. It was a little bit strange. Well, it was just not even a little bit. It was kind of creepy. I mean, she was stalking him. There's no other way to say it. And finally, he mustered the nerve to approach her and say, Ma'am, I don't know why you're staring at me, but I would love to know. Can you tell me what it is that is so fascinating about me that you would continually stare at me? And she said, you look just exactly like my fifth husband. He was taken back by that and said, that is pretty incredible. How many times have you been married? And she said, four. <laughs> Looking forward with great expectation. Let me say to you again today, as I said almost seven years ago, there is no organization on the face of the planet like the local church. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the body of Christ, the hands and the feet of Jesus. It meets in various expressions, various denominations, but make no mistake, there is one true and living church under the headship of Jesus Christ. Christians will one day unite. All that divides us here on earth, we will be gathered together under the headship of Jesus Christ, and the church is a force to be reckoned with. 
Over 2,000 years we've seen the church be a part of doing all kinds of miraculous things. People have been healed through hospitals that have been built through the church. The sick have been treated. The hungry have been fed. The naked have been clothed. The homeless have been sheltered. How and why? Through the local church. Don't lose sight of this. We are a part of something way bigger than ourselves to be a part of this expression of the church. When we gather together corporately to worship, don't miss this. Every Sunday we gather, you ought to come with great expectation. Not that it's another routine day. Not that it's just another day to get up and dress up and come and be in this building at 1508 Hardy Street. It is an opportunity to hear from the living God. It is an opportunity to worship with the people of God. It is an opportunity to be built up and encouraged in our faith in God every time we gather. I don't know about you, but I look forward with great anticipation to Sundays and our times of gathering on Wednesday because I know I'm going to leave with my cup full. I know I'm going to leave this place energized and motivated to make it through another week. Why? Not just because of the preaching of the Word, but because of the fellowship of the saints as we sing songs of praise together, as we meet in Bible study together, and as we share in the Word together. All of those things designed by the hand of God to lead us in this marvelous thing that He calls the church. I pray that we would see that as an institution, the Christian church being responsible for all those things has no rival. There are no hospitals in the world built by the agnostic society. There are no water wells being dug in third world countries by atheists that I'm aware of. And we're seeing it over and over again as missionaries are sent out from congregations to serve in the name of Jesus. We see the power of God around the globe. Amen? And as we think about that, the Christian faith is nothing at all, as I said, if it's not practiced, and yet it's the most practiced faith. Now, sometimes misguided, but when the church is at its best and the church is functioning as it ought, there is nothing that compares to it. Pastor and author Bill Hybel said, the local church is the hope of the world. And he was not taking that responsibility or that authority out of the hands of Jesus. He was saying, the local church, which is the expression of Jesus' hands and feet, on earth, under His authority, is the hope for this world. Jesus has invited us into cooperation with Him to share the gospel. And Paul was with no doubt very, very happy with these saints. He was proud of these Christians in Thessalonica. These guys had it really going. He even called them in chapter 2 and 3 His hope and His joy. And yet, he knew that even on their right track, they were living in such a way that God could do powerful things through them and there was more come. Ephesians 3.20 says this, you don't have to turn there, but God is able to do far more, exceedingly more than we could ever ask or even dream of, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, thoughts, or hopes. And so Paul wanted them to keep growing, and I want you to keep growing. Yes, we have healthy DNA in our church. Yes, we're doing some right things. Yes, we're being right in some places. But there is more. And so today I pray that we would look together at this text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we would find deep, deep places of inspection in our own hearts and lives and say, are there areas of my life that I can begin to submit and surrender to Jesus more fully 
Not in an ought to kind of way. We hear a lot of ought to sermons. I pray that this would be a get to sermon. That we would see, Lord, you mean I get to be a part of your heart here on earth? Lord, I get to be a part of your kingdom come and your will be done right here on earth? Yes. The answer is unequivocally yes. And so as Paul concludes this letter and reminds them of who they are, I just have to tell you, in doing so, he reminds me of who you are. I'm so thankful for our church. In fact, just a side note, even before we read our text, I wrote this down years and years ago, and it has stuck with me. I've written in several Bibles that I would kind of transfer notes. Every person in the world to be fully and completely fulfilled needs three homes. I believe really fulfillment comes from an earthly home. Now some of you say, I didn't have a happy earthly home. It wasn't very healthy. It put the fun in dysfunction. I understand. Those families are around. And maybe you grew up in a situation where it was difficult. But that's why I believe we need other homes and God provides them. I think that every person really to be fully experienced the expression of God's love ultimately of what we would, we would long for is an earthly home. And then a church home. There's nothing like having a church home, is there, church family? There's nothing like it. I watched this week as a funeral concluded and people from our church sat and mourned with a family and grieved with a family and then came back and provided that family potato salad. That blessed that family. I promise you that the minute... Come on, come on guys, you can lighten up a little bit. I mean, part of the morning process in the Baptist church is potato salad, right? I mean, we, they loved on that family. They nourished their bodies physically, but they nourished their souls with their companionship. You did that. Thank you. You see, the local church, when we are a part of it, is a place where our joy is multiplied. When I celebrate, you celebrate with me. And when I hurt, you hurt with me, so my pain is divided. I don't have to bear that burden alone because over and over again in Scripture, there are one another's, love one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, build one another up. And all of that said leads us to this place of understanding that an earthly home, whether it was good or bad, ought to point us to the, the place where we need a church home. And sometimes church home experiences aren't all that they should be because we are still sinful. We are still people. And sometimes in the selfishness of our own desires, our own preferences, we can make life miserable for others even in church. And some of you have experienced that kind of thing. But I believe with all of my heart that every single person here without any qualification or reservation desperately needs a heavenly home. If you don't have a heavenly home to look forward to today, you are missing it because you're living beneath the privilege of what God has offered to humankind. God, through Jesus Christ, has offered to us salvation, free and whole, complete in Christ, if you'll place your faith there. Paul knew that, and he said to this church, as messy as things can be right here, we have a hope of things to come. But we ought not leave it there. We don't excuse it and say, well, we're just human, so if we're messy here at church, it's just supposed to be that way. No, Paul in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 painted a picture of the heavenly hope and then comes back to the practical reality. So church family, put your listening ears on this morning because as we read from 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see some demands, high demands, 
that God is placing on us as a church family so that we today in this church home might reflect our heavenly home. Make sense? Are you, thank you, choir. I appreciate The choir is always behind me. Until I turned around. Let's pray together and then we're going to read the Word of God together. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning from this text and from your heart. May your Holy Spirit guide us in all that we say and think and do this morning. And Father, I pray that our Christian conduct would flow from a desire to obey you and to please you and it would come with the great benefit and pleasure and joy of knowing that obedience to you brings gladness to your heart and extends our fellowship in ways that we can't comprehend. And so I pray, God, now that you would bless the reading and the studying of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now familiar section of scripture rejoice always pray how without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus do not quench the spirit do not despise prophetic utterances but examine everything carefully hold fast to that which is good abstain from every evil or every form of evil now together I want us to just move through these verses and look at some things that Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica and some things that Paul instructs us here today at Hardy Street. If we're going to be a happy, healthy church, we need to follow this pattern. He is speaking of Christian conduct. Again, it is following a section of prophecy pointing toward the end times. He doesn't give specifics and said last week, you don't need specifics. You just simply need to be awake and prepared and ready. And this is part of how you are to be seen as awake, prepared, and ready. Live your life honoring to the Lord. If we backed up one verse, again, this is a letter. It's not divided in sections. It was written with flow. He said to encourage one another with these words. Build each other up with these words. I ought to live my life in such a way that I'm constantly stirring up in you encouragement toward obedience. You ought to live your life in such a way that you are constantly stirring up people around you in your family, in your classes, if you're a student, in your neighborhood, at your job. Other people ought to be better followers of Jesus Christ because of their interaction with you. Other people ought to live their life in Christian conduct that is pleasing unto the Lord and be motivated to do so by your life. I, I mentioned this last week. I, I got into a little bit of a, a deal with a customer service rep on a chat. And in the middle of that, I, I was just about to the point uh, of losing my religion completely. There was no service in customer service, and I was going to make sure 
that this young man knew that. And I don't know if it was a young man, an old man, or an old woman. I have no idea. He's sitting in a cubicle somewhere at a computer screen, not caring about my urgent dilemma. I mean, this was a problem for me. I had a defective product, and I wanted it fixed. And halfway through that chat, my wife came to me and said, I have one simple question. Can you right now, in good conscience, invite that man to our church? And I said, you have been extremely helpful. Thank you for your help. I'm done with my, my inquiry and my fussing. The reality is that we reflect the Lord Jesus Christ through our conduct. And Paul says, first and foremost, you need to make sure that you're doing things well. Let me give you three very simple thoughts today. Number one, honor church leaders. You say, oh good, you would start there. It says honor them, and, and these are Paul's words, not mine. Look at what he says. But when we request of you that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you, and give you instruction. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now what I want you to see is that these are checkpoints. These are like sobriety checkpoints, if you will. He had said live soberly. These are checkpoints to make sure that our church is happy and healthy. And Paul was saying, if you're not honoring church leaders, then you're missing part of what God has designed. He put them in place to give charge over you, to work diligently and give you instruction. But I want you to hear this. It doesn't start with your honoring of them. It starts with their responsibility. So notice that. The responsibility of church leaders. The responsibility of church leaders. And it moves to the response of church members. What do I mean by that? He says that you are to esteem those that work diligently among you. If a church leader is not working diligent, he's not living up to his end of the bargain. A church will not function without pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers and leadership that work earnestly and diligently. And my prayer is that we as a staff would be an example of that and that you would esteem our staff when they do and that you would challenge them to do so when they don't. Challenge your pastor to do so when he doesn't. Because this is a two-way street and it's clear from Scripture that God has established authority so that the church would function with, with decency and in order. And so it says to honor them, but when they work diligently. So the responsibility of the pastor and the staff is to work with diligence, and it says to give instruction. Now, I can't give you good instruction if I'm not spending time with God. I heard years and years ago a pastor at the Southern Baptist Convention just crying out, and he said, you, he said, you ought to shame your pastor for his knowledge of batting averages and box scores. You ought to shame him for working on his golf game to the point that he gets really good at it because you can't get good at it without playing all the time. And he said, after you've shamed him for the knowledge of things that are temporal and don't matter, chain him to his desk, pray for him without ceasing, and ask him and beg of him to stand before you and say, Thus saith the Lord. You don't need my opinion. You don't need the pastor to come and give you a Reader's Digest version of psychology. I, I could give you 37 ways to be a better parent, a better grandparent, a more loving wife, but it's better for you to hear this. I want to make you a better Christian, and if I can lead you to follow Jesus, you'll be a better wife. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better grandparent. My job is to give instruction and oversight, and I know full well that I will answer to the Lord for how I cared for you. 
And that's why I find myself in my desk trembling at times, praying over our church role and asking God to do a mighty work among you. But my prayer is that you would do a mighty work for God, and that's where Paul leads them. He says that the responsibility of the church leader must be upheld, and your response to them is that you would honor them. Does that make sense, yes or no? If I'm living up to my end of the bargain, then, then you ought to esteem me in love. And one of the ways you do that is to pray for me. Pray for our staff. Pray for Ken Hopkins. Pray for Will McCall. Pray for Scott Pittman. Pray for Richard Wangler. Pray for those deacons that lead and serve in so many different ways. And pray for your Sunday school teacher. Ask God to give our church godly leadership who would labor and give charge. I, I understand quickly, it's a sermon for another day, but I, I understand my role here is very simple. It's to preach God's word and to cast God's vision. My job is to lead the flock and to feed the flock, and every once in a while I get to shear the flock. Every once in a while. This year it's going to be on November the 18th, so if you come that Sunday, I'm shearing sheep. Y'all really do need to loosen up this morning. I'm just kidding. Notice the responsibility and the response, but what does he say? Respect them, esteem them, and live at peace with them. One of the ways that you can live in peace with your church leaders is to pray for them. And as you pray, you find yourself not wanting to buck every single idea. Now, I'm not saying that we've got all the answers, but it says to esteem them means that you better be careful that you've prayed up before you stand up against any decision. And I'm not trying to use a bully pulpit for that. I'm begging you to pray for me. I want to make good decisions. I want to make right decisions. I want to lead and counsel families well here. And I want to give the charge to our church that we together would live by the admonishment of Scripture. Secondly, I want, to see, I want you to see this, and this may be something different in your ears. Shepherd church members. Shepherd church members. Look with me, if you will, back at the text, starting in verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren. He doesn't say... Watch me do this. He said, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Shepherding church members is the responsibility of church members. My job is to lead the flock as an under-shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd but you need to shepherd one another. You need to help guide one another. You need to correct and encourage and admonish one another. It's straight from Scripture. And sometimes we get this mindset that Jesus saved me and I'll come and be an outstanding church member by my attendance. I'll just show up. I may sing in the choir. I'll go to Sunday school. But you have a job that's deeper than that. And your job is to begin to live out the Christian life and conduct yourself in such a manner that other people are drawn to Christianity, other people would notice a difference in your life, and that they would desire that difference, and you could lead them in it. Does that make sense, yes or no? So as we think about this idea of shepherding church members, he gives you several different admonishments. Number one, he says that you need to admonish the unruly. If there's somebody that's out of line in the church, you ought to be so adamant toward this church being everything that it should be in unity, 
that if you hear a, a, a harsh word spoken about a member of our church, you ought to be, th- those ought to be fighting words. And you're not fighting against people, you're fighting against the enemy. Because we have an enemy and he's not in flesh and blood. But if somebody speaks ill of this church, if somebody speaks ill of your pastor, boy, those ought to really be fighting words. You ought to stand up. But if they hear, if they say something about your Sunday school teacher, you ought to be able to stand up and say, Jesus is at work and alive in the hearts and lives of the people of Hardy Street Baptist Church. And you better be living that way so that nobody else can say it about you. And if you are, then somebody else ought to have the guts and the spiritual courage to come to you because the word says, admonish the unruly. Give to them words that they need to hear. You know, sometimes we give pointless advice. I heard a great, great story. A man in Seattle was flying a helicopter, and in his helicopter he got lost. And he got lost in the haze and the fog, and he also had an electrical issue, and with the malfunction it disabled his navigation. I know some of you would appreciate this because you have kind of an aptitude toward flight, but all of his communication is down. He has no navigation in the clouds and the haze. He couldn't determine his position. He circled around a tall building there in Seattle and he asked of them, where am I? He, he literally wrote out on a sign, where am I? And he held it up to the window and the people inside the office on a large whiteboard wrote these words, you are in a helicopter. He smiled, he waved, and he began to determine a course and steered toward the airport and he landed safely. How, you might ask. They asked him, how in the world? The co-pilot asked him, when you saw the sign that said you're in a helicopter, how in the world did you know where we were? He said, I knew that that had to be the Microsoft building. They gave me a technically correct answer that was completely useless. (laughs) And that led me to the airport. Sometimes we give each other useless answers. And we do so because we just want to be nice. And what we do is we stab each other in the back. We talk friendly. And the Bible says better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. When you're willing to cover up sin or to snicker at sin, when somebody else says something that's outside the scope of what God would desire, then you are participating in it and shame on you and shame on us as a body. Admonish the unruly. You've got a job to shepherd people around you. Secondly, he says, encourage the timid. Help those that have been beaten up. Help those that are quiet in nature. Bring them alongside you. You find somebody that says, well, witnessing and evangelism is not my gift. Why don't you take them with you and say, go with me and you just pray and we'll share the gospel. Help the weak, he says in 514. And then be patient with everyone. And I don't have to explain anything about that. Be patient with people. It says to look out for their interest and not just your own. He says that you ought to seek to live at peace with all people, not just believers. I've seen so much political rhetoric on social media that is so ungodly and unchristlike from all sides and all spectrums. And I just want to say enough. If we spent half the time praying for lost people to get saved that we have spent worried about and talking about elections and otherwise, our country would be in a better place. There'd be more people going to heaven. 
I, I trembled at this statement this week. Someone said, if you're more worried about this presidential election than you are your lost neighbor, maybe you belong to the wrong kingdom. God forbid that we as Christians would find ourselves so wrapped up in temporal things. Does the election matter? Yes. But is God still sovereign? Yes. Praise God. Let's follow Him. He says, admonish the unruly, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And then the third thing I want you to see, he says to discover God's will. If we're going to be a healthy church, you need to honor church leaders that are honorable. You need to shepherd people as God has told you in these passages. And thirdly, you need to discover God's will. It doesn't matter if we have pretty and slick mission statement banners. It doesn't matter if we have a a nice slick strategy for everything that we're going to do. We can talk about loving loud and we can put on t-shirts and we can put on a nice website and we can put things together in a slick package way. But if we don't know the will of God, then it doesn't matter one hill of beans. We must discover the will of God. Now, this is the second time in this book that we've read these words. I want you to underline them. It says, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So the next time you come and you sit in my office and say, Pastor, I need your counsel. I really am struggling with the will of God. I'm going to point you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to make you underline it again. It says, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And I'll say, are you doing that one? And if you say no, I'll say, well, we don't need to talk about anything else until you do that. What did he say is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus? Look with me again. He says for you and for me to pray. And in praying, he says to pray a certain way. Look at verse 16 and following. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. His will for you and for me is that we would always be rejoicing, that we would always be praying, and that we would seek Him with thanksgiving. How grateful are you? How grateful am I? It's easy for me at times to get caught up in first world problems. My phone charger just doesn't charge my phone quick enough. That's a pretty bad first world problem. There are places all around the world they've never seen a cell phone and could care less about a cell phone. They're hoping for another meal. How ungrateful can we become? We need to calibrate our gratitude and recognize that God has given us great and mighty gifts and that in thanksgiving when we respond to Him, what we do is begin to pray about everything. And He says to pray about everything. It says in everything give thanks, not for everything. Oh God, thank you for the cancer that you've bestowed upon me. He doesn't say that. He says, oh God, in the midst of this cancer, there are still things to be thankful for. I can trust you because you are the keeper of my soul. I can trust you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made and this didn't catch you off guard. When I find myself in difficult circumstances, I simply turn to the Lord and trust Him. And finding His will may be that in the middle of what you're going through, He wants to use that circumstance to guide you to be useful in somebody else's life. That, that is such a hard, hard thing for us. In Sunday school we looked at 1 Peter chapter 4 about suffering. Peter said, it's coming. You're going to suffer. Expect it. Don't think it's a strange thing. Jesus suffered. 
How did Jesus respond to the suffering of the world? He took it upon himself. Did he long for it? No. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he was willing to submit himself to God, trusting in the Father. And you and I can do the same thing. Finding the will of God means that we begin with gratitude and joy. And joy is something the world can't take away because the world didn't give you, as the old song says. And so a church that is healthy and happy and functioning is like this. It is a church that esteems leadership that is esteemable. It honors leadership that acts honorably. It is self-policing in that the church members shepherd one another. They guide one another. They encourage one another. They admonish one another. They live at peace with one another. All of those things directly from the words of Scripture. And Paul saying to this church who he has taught so much in a short period of time, Oh, this is what I long for from you. And Hardy Street, I would say of you, this is my earnest desire, that we would be the church at its best. A church that looks like that is magnetically attractive. I want to be a part of a place where I can come in, warts and all, wounded, and people will love me anyway. They won't talk about me or gossip about me or shoot me in the back. So many times in Baptist life, we shoot and bury our wounded. We don't nurse them back to health. And you and I need that kind of church. And Jesus demands that kind of church because it's His church. Discover God's will. How? Being joyful, being prayerful, and being thankful. Now, one last word about praying without ceasing. It doesn't mean that you are mumbling prayers. It simply means that there's a constant recurring, not a continuously recurring in that you're driving it everywhere, but always in an attitude, a mindset of prayer. In everything that comes your way, prayer ought to become a filter for your life that you are so in tune with the fact cognitively and consciously that God is in your life, that Jesus Christ has a plan and a purpose and a way for you. Not just big picture. He's not just out there. He didn't just wind your life up to run out. He wants to intimately spend every waking second with you. And when difficulty comes, I run to Jesus. When struggle comes, I run to Jesus. When joy-filled excitement and good news comes, I run to Jesus. Jesus, everything that comes my way is filtered through your sovereign hand. And I trust you. And I want to be a part of a church like that. A church that's thankful. A church that's prayerful. And a church that's joyful. You know, sometimes we overlook the thought that there are people in our midst that don't know Jesus. I said it before as I was thinking about John the Baptist. Is, is this really the way or should we look for somebody else? Today, if you find yourself joyless and prayerless, and at times ungrateful, maybe, just maybe, it's because your heart is not happy and healthy and a happy, healthy heart is a new heart. Our sinful heart can't experience the joy of the Lord. But Jesus wants to transform you. He will give you brand new eternal life. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Him, my plea to you is that trust the Lord and be saved. We have encouragers that have been trained to just simply take the Word of God. They, they're good listeners more than anything else, but they'll take the Word of God and they'll share with you what it means to be saved, what it means to be forgiven of all of your sin 
And today could be the day of your homecoming. It could be the very day that you trust Him and find that you have a heavenly home to look forward to. If you don't have a church home, maybe you've wandered around from place to place, I pray that you would find this to be a church home that looks very similar to what we just read. We're not a perfect church. In fact, we have determined as a staff that no perfect people are allowed to join this church. Jesus is the only one. So if you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to have to go down the road because it's not here. If you find that perfect church, don't join it because it will no longer be perfect because you're there. All right? You need to know that. But if you need to join with us today, we would love for you to. Our encouragers will be here. Let's stand together as we sing a hymn of decision this morning. Let God have His way in your life.